Father, we do need you all the time. Uh, we can't function apart from you. We, every breath we have is from you, but yet to glorify you and to please you, we, we need you. And Father, I thank you that you use your spirit to illumine your word so that we can understand your will. And then you empower us to do it if we're willing to do so. And I pray as we look into your word today, you would grant us uh, understanding into what you intended and that we would apply it rightly to our lives and that you would be glorified in that. Lord, we thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in troubling times. There is so much evil in the world. There is so much injustice. There is so much wickedness. There is so much violence. Uh, We live in difficult times, but uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, There's been violence. There's been sin, wickedness ever since uh, the beginning after uh, Adam and Eve fell. With the first major act of wickedness, uh, we see Cain slaying his brother, Abel. Uh, There's been violence. There's been wickedness. There are wicked people out there who don't know Christ. And we were them. We were hateful. We were wicked also. And Christ saved us. He saved us. And so right now, there are two different types of people in the world. There are those who have trusted in Christ, who are on their way to glory. And those who have not trusted in Christ, who God is patiently giving them an opportunity for a season to uh, come to him. Now, that season will end, and we're going to see that, that the season of uh, the ability to come to Christ is going to end. It either ends by your death or it will end by God intervening, as we're going to see today. So with that in mind, we're going to look at and answer the question, how will it all end? Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're continuing our look in this book. And... uh, As you're turning there, I want to remind us of some of the context. The Apostle Paul has uh, been revealing the changed lives of the Thessalonians. They were changed by Jesus Christ. They had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the Apostle Paul, after um, sharing his thankfulness for their salvation... And then uh, his thankfulness for their response to the word he shares and defends himself in the manner in which he came. Obviously, there were attacks, but he moves to share his desire to see them and how he had sent Timothy to check up on him. He's so thankful that they had uh, responded and they were walking in faith and love, faith in the Lord and love of one another. And then uh, we came to chapter 4 in which the Apostle Paul begins to shift gears and give some application and to exhort uh, the Thessalonians and us in our and their walk, their walk and our walk with the Lord. He begins to, to, to explain and talk about how they had been walking in a manner worthy and pleasing God, but yet how that happened. It was through instruction. It was through the truth that was given to them in the context of a real relationship with the Lord. And But yet they were to excel still more in their walk with Christ. Now we saw that it was God's will, our sanctification, to be set apart from sin. And then the Apostle Paul began to share some areas that we all need to excel still more, and even though we might be doing well, and they were doing well. 
The first one being sexual purity. And then the second one, as we saw last week, the love of the brethren. And then, let's give it a few weeks ago, and then on our last time together, we saw and began to look at how to excel still more in the context of hope, in the context of hope. And so with that in mind, again, uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, excuse me, 5, where we're looking at verses 1 to 11. Now, you might remember the last time we came together, we saw that at any time the Lord could come, that the Apostle Paul was comforting the Thessalonians with the reality of what their destiny is, that the Lord could come at any time. And they were concerned about their brothers and sisters. They were only less than a year old in the faith, and some who had come to faith had passed away, and they had missed Christ's coming in essence. And they were concerned about them. So the Apostle Paul shares the reality that they will come first with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, and their bodies will be resurrected, they'll be glorified, and then those who are alive and remain will be changed, and we will meet each other and the Lord in the air, and thus be with the Lord forever. So comfort one another with those words. And it's from this the Apostle Paul begins, as we will see, a new but related subject. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written for you to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them in the night. Upon them suddenly, excuse me, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, as, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. So then, tremendous passage today in which we're going to see how it's going to all end for a certain group of people. We're going to see, first of all, that the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come. And we as believers should already know this. We should already know this. Uh, verse 1, Now as to the times, to the times and the epochs, epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You might remember we saw earlier in chapter 4, verse 9, that they had no need of anything to be written to them about the love of their brethren because God teaches them. Well, here he's saying you have no need for anyone to write to you, and he's going to point out that they already know these truths. Now, it's interesting, as we begin, you might have in your Bible, now as to, and I'm going to look at these three little words for a second because they're very important in the Greek, it's actually translated peri, which means concerning days, but or and. And you could, you could basically translate it now concerning. Now concerning the times and the epochs. 
It's often translated in other places by Paul as by 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 where Paul has written it as now concerning. And it's important to realize that Paul uses this formula quite often to point out that he is changing subjects. And this is very important because people get confused between the coming of Christ, the second coming in glory and judgment, and the, the his coming to get his church. He has just spoken about uh, the reality of coming for his church, and now he begins to speak of another differing subject, but yet related. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul uses this now concerning peri day often. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the things which he wrote. 7.25, now concerning virgins. 8.1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts. 16.1, now concerning the collection of the saints. 16.12, now concerning our brother Apollos. He uses this formula to change the subject. And that's important because the subject of chapter 4 and chapter 5 are not the same event. They are very much related, but they are not the same event. And so now he's going to address something else. He's going to address something else. So what is he going to address? He says, now concerning, uh, here, he says, now concerning times and epochs. And you might remember, and I've already mentioned this, I have it in my notes to read it through, but if you, if you go back uh, to chapter 4, Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. I want to read through and I want to show you how the flow changes here, okay? For the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, we looked at this a few weeks ago, alive and remain, will be caught up, grasped uh, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's not on the earth, it's in the air, by the way. We're going up, not staying here. And he says... uh, and thus we will be with the all shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He's, he finishes that thought, and he's going to start a new thought now concerning, and he's going to say at the end of that thought, comfort one another and build one another up with those words. It's important to see that. So, what is he talking about here now? We're going to see he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Chapter 4 in the end is about the grabbing of believers to take them. We have been left behind. He's coming to grab us. Those who are alive and left behind remain. He's going to take to be with him forever, okay? That's what happens. And those who have been in the grave, their bodies and their souls with Jesus are going to be reunited with glorified bodies. And now he moves to a different subject. They're not the same, but again, they are related. And it's going to be talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not when believers are taken to glory. The day of the Lord is quite different, as we will see. Uh, Verse 1, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. He begins with a new subject concerning the times and the epochs. Uh, Chronos and Kairos. We get our word chrono, chrono, you know, chronograph, whatever it might be for for time or a watch or whatever it might be. The term chronos, speak, changed or translated as times, speaks of a duration of time as ex, as a, as viewed in its extension, a duration of time viewed in that way. Okay, and the term epochs, kairos, speaks of uh, the extent or the character of a block of time in reference to specific events. 
So times, that block of time, and then the character of that time. Now as to the times and epochs, he talks about you have nothing to be written. Nothing, you need nothing to be written to you. Now the Lord Jesus used a very similar phrase to describe his future earthly kingdom on earth. I, that's, I just said that twice. Yeah, future earthly kingdom on earth. And so in Acts chapter 1, I'll read this for you, verse 6. The disciples said that when they had come together, they were speaking to him. This is after he had resurrected from the dead. Or, yes, after, and said, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom in Israel? Hey, is the kingdom come? My, thy kingdom come. Is that what it is? And how does Jesus answer them? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know that right now, okay? But concerning our understanding of this certain portion of the day of the Lord, it is for us to know. And he has revealed it in his word. Notice that's really what it's about. Verse 1, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, we'll talk about that in a minute, you have no need of anyone, anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the times and epochs, or the day of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So we have the reality is what he's speaking about, this future block of time with future characteristic events is the day of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Now as to this future reality that takes up a block of time that is characterized by specific events, it's uh, you don't need anyone to write, write to you. You don't need anybody to write to you. They obviously already had heard from Paul. They already understood about that. But these Thessalonians were concerned. They were concerned about Christ's return. They were concerned had they missed it. Uh, and also they were going through great persecution. You'll see that in chapter 3 and chapter 2, actually. Persecution. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 reveals they were being persecuted greatly. They were afflicted. And maybe, maybe someone was saying, hey... You're in the tribulation. You're in the end. You're in the day of the Lord. It's already come. Things are terrible. You know, you can think about that. Think back to like World War II, you know, and all the, all the death and awful killing that went on. People might say, wow, this is the worst it's ever made. This must be the end. This must be the end. You could see how that could be the case. But the apostle Paul says, hey, you do not need anyone to write to you about this. You already know the Apostle Paul within the first three weeks of being with this church had explained to them a lot of doctrine, a lot of truth. You know, I find it interesting how so many false pastors try to say, well, you can't really give it to them that too hard. They, they can't understand it yet. They don't. Well, they can't understand because they're not saved usually. That's the reason why. But uh, the Apostle Paul was not like that. He shared solid truth right away with the Thessalonians. He says, you don't need anybody to write to you. You don't need anybody. Second Thessalonians chapter 5, concerning the day of the Lord, he writes, Do you not remember when I was with you, I was telling you these things? Hey, I was telling you about this when I was with you. Those first three weeks. And they are less than a, a year old in the faith. And he's saying, hey, you don't need to know. And notice who he's talking to, and this is really important. He says this, Now as the times and epochs, brethren, they're the brethren. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They are those who have been convicted of their sin. They have turned to Jesus from their idols there. They have believed in his work on the cross as sufficient to cover their sin, bringing forgiveness. And this is important because 
what is going to come, there's going to be a you and a they. And the you applies to believers, the they does not apply to them. And you need to know very clearly that's the case. Very clearly. It's very important that we realize he is speaking to believers. And so the you will be to believers, the they will be to those who are on their way to a certain judgment. So he says here, you have no need of anything to be written. And then he explains, verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. I don't need to write you about this. You know this. You know this. The term in Greek, oida, no. You've come to an understanding about this. You know, and it's a, it's a tense that means you, you've known in the past, completed action, and you still know, you still have that understanding. And notice he modifies this term know with, the, with, the, with an adjective uh, translated full well, full well. And this adjective actually is, is pretty interesting. Uh, it was used uh, by uh, Matthew in Matthew 2.8 when he spoke of Herod. When Herod speaks the Magi, and this is Herod speaking, but it's written, it's written by Matthew, go and make careful search. Careful, that's the same word. Luke chapter 1 verse 3, I, it seemed fitting to me, Luke writes, having investigated everything carefully. You know very carefully, you know exactly some translations what's happening. You know full well. You know exactly what it is that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You fully understand. You know it. And I mentioned earlier that he had, he had, he had shared these things while he was with them. Chapter two, first, second Thess chapter two, verse five. And so then, he says, you know full well. Well, what do they know full well? That the day of the Lord will come, it's going to come, just like a thief in the night. Well, how do thieves come in the night? Does the thief uh, call and say, hey, I'll be there at 3 a.m., please leave all your doors unlocked, right? (laughs) He comes at night because he doesn't want to be seen, first of all, but the point here is not that. The point is he comes unexpectedly you do not know when you do not know when and it is sudden as we will see it is unexpectedly and silently in a sense he says you all know this already he said you know this already it's going to come this way and if it's going to come this way then i certainly don't know when it's going to happen right because it's going to come at a time in which you don't expect it that's the point he's saying here so for those of you who are prophecy clock watchers, sign seekers, all that stuff, stop watching those shows. It's not going to get you anywhere. You know already that these events are going to come suddenly and, 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 and in, in a sense quickly and unexpectedly. So with that in mind, what is the day of the Lord? And will we go through it? Will we go through it? Well, simply put, the day of the Lord is God's direct judgment on the world. It is his fierce judgment against sin and sinners. He says, times and epochs, you need no one to write you. You know full well the day of the Lord. A very specific term. Uh, Turn to 2 Peter. We had it written for us, read for us before, but turn there also. We'll see something about it. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 3. 
Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's the coming of Christ, right? And he says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Okay, that's what they say. Um, and so the mockers are saying, hey, he's not coming. But then notice uh, what Peter points out that has escaped their notice in the past. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. It escapes their notice that when God said something, he did it. He created the heavens and the earth. Light be and light was. He said it and it existed. And the earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You escapes their notice that God brought a flood, a flood judgment, according to his word. Then notice what he says in verse 7. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with, that with the day, with, with the Lord, one day is as. It doesn't equal, it's as. It's like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what's going to happen. He says it. it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet because God's a patient God. He doesn't want judgment to come upon anyone apart from the opportunity to repent and escape that judgment, to be forgiven. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. How so? Like a thief. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 10, in which the heavens will pass away with the war. Now, this is, this is a whole time of events, you know, when he says this. It's a time and the events that encompass this. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, yells destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So we have the day of the Lord from Peter sharing what it is. It's God's direct judgment upon sin and sinners. Well, what else do we know from other scriptures about the day of the Lord? Well, think about the term from our passage itself, the day of the Lord. It is Yahweh's day. The term Lord speaks of the I am, the great one, the self-existent one. It is God. It is the Lord's day, the sovereign's day. You see, man is having his day right now. You can go out right now and you can sit it up. And if you don't mess up too much and not kill yourself, you can keep going for a while. You can sit up and do as much evil as you want right now. Man has his day. But God is patient. He is not willing that any should perish. And in that, he is waiting for people to repent. He is gracious and patient. But the day will come. Let's look at some passages about it because it's very serious. This is how it's going to end. We as believers, and I'll show this later on, will have been taken away. We will not go through this. But for the world, this is what's going to happen. And we'll talk about it later. We'll give you a little outline of it. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Turn there. Isaiah 13, 6. Right in the middle of your Bibles. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It's a pretty serious thing. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. You see, people right now are saying, why isn't God acting? All that evil out there. What about the child molesters? All the terrible things. Why isn't God addressing this wickedness? 
Why doesn't he take care of it? Why would he let these things go? He's not going to let them go. He's going he's to punish sinners for their sin, but he is giving people a space to repent and be forgiven. That's the only reason. And even the wickedness that happens, he uses for good in spite of that horrible wickedness. Take the cross, the worst wickedness ever, the Son of God being delivered up to death, yet to use that to save us. It comes as destruction, will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will, they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look upon one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark as when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. God has not done that. That day is coming where he will, it will be up. He will put an end to the wickedness of mankind. Right now, that wickedness can end through salvation or it can end through judgment. It can end through salvation in Jesus Christ. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah, right before Haggai. Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1.14. Zephaniah 1.14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath, verse 15, is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. It's because of sin. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither will their silver nor their gold be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. With all the earth, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. If you go to Revelation, you see that term, inhabitants of the earth. It speaks of those who dwell on the earth who have rejected Christ. Very clearly, those who dwell on the earth. Jesus speaks of it in the Olivet Discourse. Turn to Luke chapter 17. He speaks of it also. And it's a pretty brutal thing to think about. No one's going to get away with sin. God hates sin, and his wrath is piling up against sin. But he is willing to completely forgive you because he poured out his wrath on Jesus. And you get a pardon, complete pardon, if you believe in Jesus. But if you reject Jesus, this is your destiny. Luke chapter 17, verse 24. For just as lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will be the Son of Man in his day. Hey, it's going to happen fast. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's his first coming. 
And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. And well, the same thing, it was the same in the days of Lot. They were eating, this is Luke 24, 28. Um, Luke, excuse me, 17, 28. Did I tell you the right passage? 17, 28. Um, and he says here, it was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. It's going to happen quickly and very drastically. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Thessalonians, the same church, Paul writes them again, and they are suffering greatly. They are suffering very much so. And God says, hey, I'm going to take care of that. Don't worry. Don't worry. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You let God be the one who does that, by the way, because he's just. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 7, in the middle of the verse. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from, his, and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. It's going to come. And it's going to be very visible. It's not going to be where we meet him in the air. That's the rapture. This is his second coming. So then with that in mind... Although Jesus is our Savior and he is our friend, he will execute judgment on sin and sinners. All judgment has been given to the Son. God declares now that all men everywhere should should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the man Christ Jesus, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead, Acts chapter 17. I don't think we actually truly understand God's distaste and... um, his, uh, the intensity of his wrath towards evil. I don't think we understand it. I don't think we understand it, but the day of the Lord will come. But God is patient. Look back at Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants you to repent. His desire is for every person to repent. For every person. That's his desire. He doesn't want to pour out his wrath on you, but that day will come if you reject him. We know the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, therefore repent and live. The day is coming. But what will it be like? What will be the fate of those who have rejected Christ? Look back in our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. We're going to see they're going to be caught off guard. And they're going to believe the great lie. Verse 3. While they, now notice it's a change from you to they. You believers, you know this is going to happen. It's not going to catch you off guard. But they, 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 this is a different group. 
Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. You know this full well. This is going to happen. It's going to come. Sinners, 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 the world apart from Christ will not get away with what they're doing. He changes from you in verses 1 and 2 to they in verse 3. And they are saying peace and safety. That's what they're saying. That's their mindset. Hey, we can live in peace. And the word safety means security in a sense. We can live secure with peace and stay in our sins. And it's no problem. The world thinks that's okay. You can continue and just live the way you want to live and it's fine. It's not fine. Peace and safety without repentance for sin. It's a big lie. It's the big lie. There is no peace for the wicked. Turn to Jeremiah 23. Indeed, Israel's false prophets were saying very clearly the same thing before judgment came upon Israel. A judgment picturing a larger judgment. Jeremiah 23, verse 17. Let's go to 16. Now, the the prophets in Israel are saying, peace and safety, God's not going to bring out his wrath in you. Not at all. He's not going to do that. That's what they're saying. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah 23, 16, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Sounds like some charismatic churches right now, right? Not from the Lord. He says, they are saying to those who despise me, these are people who don't love the Lord, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come on you. It's not going to come? Where's the promise of his coming? It's all the same. That's just baloney. He's not coming. There's no wrath. There's no nothing. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. The characteristic of the world right before the end when Christ comes to bring judgment will be peace and safety. Everything is fine without Jesus. Or they'll have a fake Jesus. A Jesus of their own imaginations. Peace and safety. Peace and safety. But folks, the reality is sin is our problem. And God is a God of wrath and judgment and justice and holiness. And yet he is a gracious God who also gave his son to die for our sins. So then, back to 1 Thessalonians 5. While they are saying peace and safety, then what's going to happen? Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Destruction will come upon them suddenly. It'll come upon them suddenly. You know, if you reject Christ, you can live your life all your life and nothing seems to really happen. And the day that the Lord takes you back home to, not home, but takes you, you die, your destruction, your eternal destruction will come upon you. 
But this here is speaking of the end of time when the Lord comes. They're saying peace and safety, but it will come, as he says here, suddenly. Suddenly. And this interesting word says to, that's translated to come upon, it speaks of standing nearby. It'll come upon them suddenly. It'll just come right up to them. And the term we have here is destruction. And we already saw this back in 2 Thessalonians 1, but Paul elaborates on that destruction. He says that God will deal out retribution and they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So then, he says that it'll happen also upon them suddenly, suddenly, like, a, like birth pains of a woman upon a woman with child. Now, I don't know anything about this. Well, I know a little bit about it. But, uh, you know, ladies, we understand birth, right? That uh, the child grows and then there comes a point where all of a sudden birth pains come and labor is on its way. It just all of a sudden happens and the event is happening no matter what. The event is happening. He's saying just like that, just like that. But notice what he says in the end. In verse 3, and they shall not escape. No one's going to get away. They're not going to escape. The word escape means flee. And it's emphatic. They shall not be able to flee from this judgment. It's not going to happen. Those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will not escape God's judgment. There is no second chance they shall not escape. Jesus says in Luke 12:4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have nothing they can do. But I warn you to fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Matthew 10:28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. God is the God of the universe, and he is going to deal with sin. And he will destroy you. You'll be destroyed forever and ever in hell for your sin if you reject Jesus. He gave his own son. He died for you. And you can be forgiven by believing you're a sinner and trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. This time that when it happens, we know from Ezekiel 18, God takes no pleasure in the death of a wicked. He's not happy. Ezekiel 18:32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. So that's the fate of those who have rejected Christ in the end time, as we will see in the day of the Lord. That's the fate of them. Is that our fate? Look at uh, verse 4. But you, changes pronouns, it was they, but you, brethren, believers in Jesus Christ, the family of God, see how great a love that we should be called children of God and such we are. But you, brethren, are not of darkness that the day, that's the day of the Lord, his wrath and judgment for sin shall overtake you like a thief. You are not characterized by sin. That's what darkness points to. You are not of darkness. You're not going to be brought into that judgment. Extremely important contrast. 
God's unexpected sudden judgment carried out by his son on sin and sinners will not grasp you or overtake you like a thief unexpectedly. It's not going to happen like it will to them. Believers will not go through God's judgment or his wrath on sin and sinners. Remember we saw back in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that these Thessalonians believed and understood that Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll see later on when we finish up here that we are not destined for wrath but for salvation as believers. It's going to be encouraging for those who are saved, but for those who aren't, it's going to be an eternal check in your heart, and I pray that you respond. You see, remember that believers beforehand were taken out, and then God brings us wrath. And I gave you a, uh, out on, the, on your outlines out in the front portion there, it's with your outline, a overview of end time events. And you can take that home and look at it. It's kind of an overview of the things that are going to happen with the scriptures. There you can look those up. I don't have time to read the scriptures, but I think the scriptures are pretty clear concerning it. So I just want to give a real brief overview of the scenario of what happens and when the day of the Lord happens. So you can have an understanding of that. And just feel free to listen, and I'll, it's pretty close to what I've written here. So first of all, the first thing that I believe is on God's prophetic clock is what we call and, and had seen in chapter 4, which is the rapture. This is where Christ comes for his church, his bride. He comes for her, and he comes and, and calls her up. But first of all, he brings with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Jesus Christ, their souls. You see, if I die right now, my soul goes to be with Jesus, and my body goes in the grave. And when Jesus comes back, I would come back with him and he would raise my body and I'd be glorified at that point, having a body for eternity, immortal, without sin. But then those who are alive and had remained, have been left behind, will be changed in the same way in that moment. And then we will all meet Jesus in the air, in the clouds, and be with him forever. That's what we call the rapture. That's chapter 4. It's also in 1 Corinthians 15. It's where Jesus takes his bride to a place where he has promised. He's preparing it, just like a, the picture of a, of a husband. In a Jewish marriage, the husband would prepare the house, prepare the house, prepare the house, prepare the house. When it was done, he would come unexpectedly and suddenly for the bride and take her, and they would get married. They'd have the marriage. And then they would go to the house that he's prepared. John chapter 14, Jesus says he goes to prepare a place that where he is, we may be. He's talking to his disciples. So I believe we'll be taken up to heaven. We will be in heaven at that time, as we'll see. And during that time, I believe we'll possibly have the judgment of our deeds in the body, the Bema Seat, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3. And at this time, I believe we will also experience not the marriage supper, but the marriage of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. What a glorious time in heaven for us where the saints will have be experiencing with the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. But the events on earth will be quite a bit different. For during a period of seven years, Daniel's 70th week, Daniel 9, 21 to 27, the earth will experience tribulation such as the world has never seen, and at the end of that tribulation, Christ will come. Matthew 24. Now during this seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, uh, it will begin with a covenant with the Antichrist that makes with, uh, with Israel. We see that in the book of Daniel. And then we see in the middle of that tribulation, three and a half years, Satan, Romans chapter, Revelation 12, is cast out of heaven. 
And he begins to pursue the woman and begins to, to be furious and pursue and kill believers. And he gives all his power and authority to the Antichrist, Revelation chapter 13. And at that time, the Antichrist will, will declare himself to be God, Daniel 9, 27, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. And this abomination of desolation will enter the holy place in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years. Uh, we see that in Matthew Matthew 24, 15. This tribulation time, uh, which goes up to the point where Christ comes back, is the day of the Lord. It's that whole period of time culminating in Yahweh coming back in judgment. We saw a bunch of passages concerning the day of the Lord. Zephaniah, Isaiah, we read those earlier. Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Luke 17, 1 Thess 5 in our passage, 2 Thess 1 and 2 Peter 3, we've looked at that. It will be the time of Jacob's trouble or distress. Daniel 9, Jeremiah 30, Romans 11. And the last half of the tribulation where Satan has declared himself to be God, not Satan, but the Antichrist, powered by Satan, declared himself to be God, will be what's called the Great Tribulation. And the Lord during that time will bring his judgments and destruction and at the same time purge Israel, leaving only a third, Zechariah 13 and 14. And at the end of that seven-year tribulation, Christ will come personally with his holy ones, the saints, the church, and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he will destroy his enemies in the battle of Armageddon, and he will save all Israel of that time, not of all time. Ezekiel 34, 36 through 39, Jeremiah 30, Joel 3, Zechariah 12 and 14, Romans 11, Revelation 19. Excuse me. And at that point, there'll be the millennial kingdom. thousand-year reign of Christ, where Satan is bound for a thousand years. The curse is lifted, and Christ will reign on earth. But at the very end, Satan will be released for a short time, and he will bring about a rebellion, and fire will come down from heaven and devour them. And then the heavens and earth will pass away, and there will be a new heavens and earth. But before that, there'll be the great white throne judgment, where all... The unbelievers of all time are actually judged for their, for their deeds and they are thrown in the lake of fire, Revelation 20. Then in Revelation 20 and 21, we have the eternal state where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, where Christ makes all things new. New heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwells. So back in our passage, what we are seeing is the events of that seven-year tribulation culminating in Christ coming in judgment and wrath at the very end. That's really what signifies the day of the Lord. (coughs) And so he says in verse 4, But you, brethren, back in our passage, are not of darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. It's not going to take you, but, it's, but they will not escape. They will be overtaken, but you will not. But they will. And why will believers not be overtaken by God's wrath and judgment? He says, you're not of darkness. You're not of darkness. You see, simply put, we're not of darkness. You see, the non-believer lives in darkness, the darkness of sin and evil. And he is identified by his very own sin, headed for judgment. But we as believers have been delivered from our sins. God no longer sees us 
in our sins, he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. We are light in the Lord. Colossians chapter 1.13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness of sins. We lived in the, in, the, in the reign of sin and death, but God through Christ delivered us. Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul is speaking to Agrippa about his conversion. And he says in that, in the end of verse 17 of Acts chapter 26, the Gentiles, the Lord is talking to Paul as he's saving him, the Gentiles to whom I am ascending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light of the Lord, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, when we believed in Jesus Christ, we had our sins forgiven and we received his righteousness. We are no longer seen and characterized by our sin. We are not of darkness. And therefore, God's wrath and the day of wrath will not overtake us. We're not going to be in that. Jesus is going to take us before that, as we're going to see. We are not destined or appointed to that, as we'll see, because of Jesus. And notice back in our passage, he says, for, he explains, verse 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of dark night nor of darkness. Sons of this is not the fate of a son, a child of God. We are sons of light. We, are, we have his nature, in a, sense, in a sense, by his spirit in us. We are those of the light. We are not of darkness. We are those of the day, not of darkness. We deserved punishment, but God crushed his son in our place. And we became, through faith in Christ, light in the Lord, sons of light. whole different reality. So what should be our response to the fact that we have been delivered from this and we will not enter into it? Verse 6, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. How should we respond knowing that we are not going to go to that horrible wrath and judgment? That, that is not our destiny. How should we respond? He says, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The term sleep speaks of uh, laziness, lethargy, spiritual uh, inaction. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The term alert means watchful, means looking for something to happen, looking for his coming. Sober means self-controlled and clear-headed. Let us be watchful for the Lord and let us be clear-headed He says and explains, verse 7, for those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. He's basically using an analogy that sinners sin in the darkness. You're not of that. You're of the day. So be alert and sober. He says in verse 8, but since we are of the day, we are of Christ, we are of his righteousness, let us be sober. Here's what we need to do. In light of God's wrath and coming judgment, we need to have our head on straight. And we need to be awaiting his coming. Don't get caught up and don't let your, your, your mind get thrown around by all the stuff going on around you. 
God is going to take care of that. And He has delivered you from that ultimately. Get your head straight and your thinking straight. Be watching, not worrying. Be focusing on Christ, not fixating on life. Be sober. Be turning from sin and confessing rather than entering into sin. Get your thoughts in order. Be sober and watchful. Don't think and act like those who are in the darkness. Now, we can think and act like those in the darkness very easily by what we put into our minds, can't we? And there's a lot of darkness out there. It's a lot of darkness. So how am I going to do this? How do I do this? How do I think this way? We need to protect our hearts and minds with this truth. We need to focus on the truths that are and do apply to us. Verse 8. But since we are of the day and not of the night, let us be sober. And notice what he says. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. These are protective things. Protect your vital organs, your heart and your head. It's metaphorically. Put on the armor of light. Put on the breastplate of faith, or having put it on, faith in Christ and its result, love, obedient action. You want to walk in a sober fashion? Trust Jesus and obey Him. Be sober. Trust Jesus and love His people by obeying Jesus in relationship to them. And notice he says, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation that is in Christ. Let God's word concerning your salvation, not destruction of others, or because you're not going to go there, but God's word concerning salvation, present and future, past, present, and future, protect your mind. God is making things right, and he will destroy Satan and sin. We are not destined for wrath. Paul gives us a good practical example of this in Romans 13. Turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now time, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Hey, every day that goes on after we believe, salvation is getting closer and closer and closer. He says here, the night is almost gone. The time of sin reigning on this earth is almost gone. And the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Stop going the way you used to go before you got saved. Let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sexuality, not in strife or jealousy. We shouldn't be walking in the flesh. So it's got all those other things, but then you get to strife and jealousy. Set that stuff aside. Don't live in darkness. It's darkness. Got that in your family? It's darkness. No more. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Allow Jesus to control your heart and mind. Give no leeway to your flesh and its lusts. Be sober. Let's be sober and put on having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet as the hope of salvation. So let me ask you this. Are you a son or daughter of the light? Then think and live that way. Think and live that way. For the day will come when sinners are exterminated and we have escaped his judgment. We are no longer of that.
Okay, with the fate of those who rejected Christ in mind, what is the destiny of those who believe? Let's finish up. Look at verse 9 back in our passage. He's explaining about this hope of salvation, and this is part of that hope, so this helps us understand that. For God has not destined us for wrath. Praise the Lord. This is not our destiny. This horrible future for those who reject Christ is not your destiny if you have trusted in Christ. It is not your destiny. The term destiny means appointed. God has not appointed us for his wrath. The term wrath speaks of a vigorous upsurge of one's anger, an outpouring of stored anger. God's wrath on sin and sinners. We see in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, the very clear reality of judgment coming, storing up God, storing up his wrath for the day of judgment. But we're not destined for wrath. We're not destined for this. Remember chapter 1, verse 9, or verse 10, he delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, this is why another reason why this can't be for believers, this time of the seven-year tribulation and then also this end judgment. God hasn't destined us for that. Jesus takes us away before that. We will not go through the tribulation in the day of the Lord, brothers and sisters. God has not destined us for wrath. But what have we been destined for? This is really great. Verse 9. Notice the contrast. But for obtaining salvation. That's our destiny. We haven't been destined for wrath, but literally, but rather for obtaining salvation. And the term obtaining is a pretty cool word because it speaks of acquiring, obtaining, or possessing. Our destiny is not God's wrath, but rather possessing or acquiring salvation the tremendous reality about salvation in jesus christ is this that through his shed blood we were delivered from our sins we were justified through faith in jesus and yet our salvation continues right now as god sets us apart from sin when we trust and obey him allow our hearts and minds to be changed by his word but there is a glorious future result for all believers we saw uh, in chapter four a part a component of that when we will be glorified and with Christ, with bodies that will never sin again, we will never think a bad thought, we will never do a bad thing. I can't believe that. I, I know it's true, but I can't fathom that. Where we will never have a temptation, never have any of this, and we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with him forever. Our destiny is the culmination or possession of our salvation with Christ to be with him forever. Notice what it says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining, possessing salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. It is only through Jesus Christ you can be saved from your sins. He is the only Savior. He died for us. Our great God and Savior who gave himself for us. Titus chapter 2, 14. Galatians chapter 1, he gave himself for us that he might deliver us from this present evil age. He gave himself for our sins. Our sins separated us from the living God, but through Jesus Christ, we've obtained salvation and we will obtain salvation. Who died for us. He died for us. And then notice the purpose. It's really wonderful. That whether we are awake or asleep, 
we may live together with him. Whether you pass away or you're alive, we are going to obtain salvation and we will be with him forever. Right now, we're not with him presently. We have his spirit. We're not with him. We're in the middle of a world of sin and darkness and wickedness. And one day we'll be with him, sin-free, glorified forever. God saved us to be with him forever, and we will possess that. We will possess that. That is our destiny. So guard your mind. Put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Be sober. Be sober. So what response should we have? Verse uh, 10, therefore, or in the last verse here, 11. Therefore, encourage one another, because it's great salvation in Christ, and build one another. Use it to build up the body of Christ. And he says, just as you are doing. They were doing it. They were, there's a good group of believers, the Thessalonian church. But do that. Encourage one another. Hey, what you see right now isn't going to go forever. All the wickedness, the sinfulness, the injustice, all this is not going to go forever. God is going to take care of that. But for us, our destiny is salvation. Encourage one another. Build one another up. That's our destiny. When we forget what's going to happen to us and what God has promised, we get our eyes all focused on this world and all this stuff, and it is horrible. Our hearts just sink down into the the, the mire of, of the wickedness of everything we see around us. That's not our destiny. Their destiny is wrath. Our destiny is salvation. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your destiny is wrath. Because God has to take care of sin. But he loved you so much, he sent his son instead of you to pay the full penalty, to die on the cross. And he bore our sins on his body on the cross, and he he died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. If you acknowledge your sinfulness, Jesus, I'm a sinner and you cry out to him, save me, he will save you. And you will be destined for eternity with a good God, a loving God, a gracious God, who is holy, righteous, just, where there's no sin. So encourage one another with these things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word, and uh, I pray that we would be encouraged with our destiny. We are not destined for wrath. But yet you will part your wrath. You've said you will. The day will come, just like a thief. Suddenly. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who could theoretically go to that day, having rejected Christ, that they wouldn't. They would turn and believe. Pray for that. that uh, and that you would uh, convict their hearts, that they would see their sin and their trust in Jesus. And Father, for those of us who know you, may we remember we are not destined for wrath. May we be comforted by the facts we saw in chapter 4 that we're going to be with you and our loved ones forever. And may we be comforted that we're not destined for this, but we're destined for salvation. To be with you forever. Lord, help us to remember this. And it all came about because your son died for our sins. He gave himself for us. So we praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.